This episode is dedicated to Ethan Hastings. My girl caught me DMing Chrissy D, my zucchini slice. So make no mistake, I've got a situation. It's what it is, cuz. And Ryan, for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. This is Sam. This is David Vine. And this is Southpaw. This episode was recorded on January 7th, 2021, and really helps frame January 6th in a greater context. Today on Southpaw, we have Professor David Vine, who has written a new book called The United States of War, a global history of America's endless conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. It's not only a book I think everyone should read, but it's a book that I think should be assigned at schools, along with a people's history of the United States especially to put into context Trump, 2020, and now 2021. Hi, David. Hey, Sam. It's great to be with you. Can you first start by telling us a bit about yourself? Sure. I'm, I am a professor of anthropology at American University in Washington, D.C. So what was the impetus for writing The United States of War? The impetus for writing the United States of War goes back at least 19 years. I got a very lucky phone call the summer of 2001 when I had just started graduate school. And I got a phone call from a lawyer who told me about uh, a story I had not heard of and most people in the United States and most people around the world haven't heard of. Uh, this is not just a story, but it's, it's the history of, of a people called the Chagosian people who had been living on islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean, an island called Diego Garcia and the surrounding Chagos Islands. That's why they're called Chagosians. And they and their ancestors had been living there until uh, the late 1960s and early 1970s, when the U.S. government, U.S. military, decided to build a military base on their main island, Diego Garcia. And in the process of building this military base, the U.S. government, with, with the help of the British government, which controlled the islands, forcibly removed the entire Chagosian people from their homes, from their homeland, the land of their ancestors, and deported them about 1,200 miles away, left them on the docks, literally, in most cases, left them on the docks in the western Indian Ocean islands of Mauritius and the Seychelles, and left them there without any resettlement assistance, with no compensation, no nothing, no choice. And the people, unsurprisingly, became deeply impoverished and have been fighting for the right to go back to their homes now for more than half a century. And the lawyer was calling me that day because he and some other lawyers, a transnational team of lawyers, were representing the Chagosians, working with the Chagosians to get the right to return to their homes uh, and some proper compensation for, for what had happened to them. And they were looking basically for some some cheap labor. They were looking for a graduate student who might do some some work for free, which I was more than happy to do, happy to to help research, in, in my case, the effects of the expulsion on their lives, what what 
the uh, expulsion from their homeland um, meant in the, in their lives, uh, materially, uh, economically, psychologically, in every sense. Um, so that uh, began a new period of research for me, and a, a period that really opened my eyes, not just to this horrific uh, act that had that had befallen the Chagossians that U.S. government officials had carried out, but also to the world of U.S. military bases that encircle the globe. I vaguely knew that the U.S. had a military base on the island of Diego Garcia from the first war with Iraq, the first Gulf War, 1991. But I didn't know anything about the Chagossians until I got this phone call. And thinking more about Diego Garcia made me think, wait a second, why does the United States have a military base in the middle of the Indian Ocean? What is a military base in the middle of the Indian Ocean thousands of miles from the nearest U.S. border, how is that protecting the United States, if at all? And it made me look at the whole collection of U.S. bases around the world. Now they number around 800 U.S. bases outside the 50 states in Washington, D.C., in around 80 countries and colonies. Uh, and the number has fluctuated, but, but it's, it's the largest collection of foreign military bases in world history, larger than any empire or people, uh, nation has, has maintained in, in, in world history and human history. And uh, so I, I, the research expanded from just focusing on the Chagossians and the effects of, of their expulsion to this collection of military bases the U.S. has maintained around the world, especially since World War II, but, but a, a collection that, that in many ways dates to the first days of U.S. independence. And that led to a, a second book. Uh, the, I wrote a first book about the history of the, the Chagossians called Island of Shame, uh, about the history of the base and their expulsion, and led to a, additional research about this whole collection of bases uh, and a book called Base Nation. And then after finishing Base Nation, I realized that there was something bigger that I, I hadn't fully grappled with, hadn't taken on, hadn't written about, that I wanted to write about, and, and that I wanted to understand, frankly. And that is the larger system of war and larger system of, of empire that shaped the lives of the Chagossians and shapes this huge collection of military bases. Uh, I didn't want to just take on what I see as a, a kind of symptom and important feature of, of, of U.S. empire, of the U United States as an empire, and of uh, a system of war that dates to independence. I wanted to take on the whole system. And that's what, what the United States of War seeks to do. A lot of people might not be aware, but is a lot of this type of historical forensic work done by anthropologists? I, I love that term, historical forensic work. I, I'm, I think I'm going to steal it. Uh, well, cre I'll credit you, actually. Uh, <laughs> but in, not a huge amount. But I would say they're, they're for really since around the time I got involved uh, with the, the Chagossians and, and the base on Diego Garcia and that research, that, that is since right around the time of 9-11 of and the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan that followed uh, the attacks of 9-11, anthropologists have increasingly focused their attention on understanding uh, the U.S. military, uh, U.S. imperialism, uh, and related topics, the, the militarization of our daily lives. Uh, and some indeed have have carried it out in a, in a historical way. Uh, but I, I think my research has always been deeply historical. And many anthropologists today, um, their work is deeply historical, that, that you can't understand any group of people, any society, any culture, 
anything in the world without putting it in its proper historical context. So that goes to my next question, which is about the U.S. and how we here often think of other countries when we think of inaccurate teachings of history, to your point about context and putting it into its right place. So how much do jingoism and nationalism color our depiction of U.S. history? Profoundly, I would say. And in many ways, the process of researching and writing the United States of War was a process of uh, my own attempt to step away from and gain some distance from the kinds of nationalist and jingoistic histories that I had imbibed, that I had consumed in many ways, and that I had been fed. And that I think if you grow up in the United States, everyone is fed in, in many senses. And in schools, of course, um, at least the vast majority of schools that that sort of traffic in a kind of nationalist history, especially when it comes to wars that, that celebrate U.S. wars, that sort of describe wars in an extraordinarily bloodless fashion, meaning they, they focus on the, the supposed glory of war and the victories of the United States and don't very much at all, if at all, focus on the, the human damage that wars inflict and the environmental damage among other forms of damage, uh, and that always portray the United States as as the hero, um, or in almost every case, certainly. Uh, but it goes beyond our schools. It goes to the way history books are written. Uh, it's, we see it in our newspapers and in, in our media generally. Uh, we see it even in the depiction of the events of the past uh, few hours, events of the past day. Uh, at least as when we're talking, uh, the storming of the U.S. Capitol by a, a mob that Trump uh, fueled and, and urged on um, has been depicted as, you know, the storming of this great symbol of U.S. democracy. And the Capitol is a, 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 a tool of, of, of U.S. democracy. It's an important feature of, of U.S. democracy. But but in those depictions of the, the capital as a symbol of U.S. democracy, ideas of, of, of perfection, of a perfect U.S. democracy have been invoked uh, that do not acknowledge the profound limitations of U.S. democracy from independence to the present, uh, let alone the other uh, facets of, of what the United States has been in its history. It sounds like the difference between symbolic reality versus objective reality? Well, I guess I would question whether there is any objective reality, but indeed, uh, symbolic reality uh, that uh, I think, especially when it comes to depictions of history and depictions of the present, uh, symbols are, are invoked and, and used that, that, that essentially themselves invoke kinds of myths about about U.S. history and about what the United States is that are not an accurate portrayal of reality in the slightest, that are, you know, in a certain sense, fake news, um, fake, fake history. So let's define some terms. What is imperialism? So imperialism is a, a practice. Uh, it's important to say that this is debated. Many, many people would offer different definitions, but a, a general definition is that imperialism is a, a, a practice carried out by one people or state or nation in which it exercises control and domination and rule 
over a significant part of the life of another group of people or nation or countries, uh, states. Um, so it, it's, it's a system of, of domination and influence and control where one, one people comes to rule over other peoples. And it can take on many forms. And, and part of what I try to describe in the United States of War is the way that the U.S. empire and U.S. imperialism have changed over time. One of the things I show is that, that U.S. leaders modeled the United States in the days leading up to independence and after independence, after the European empires that, of course, had colonized the Western Hemisphere. Um, and, and that's why the Columbus appears in the title of the book. The, the history I trace actually goes back to Columbus arriving in the Americas and beginning a process of European imperialism where European empires, European uh, nations came to rule over, of course, uh, millions of other people and, and large swaths of the globe. Um, so this is an example of, of imperialism. Empire then becomes just the term we use to describe a, a state or nation or people that, that practices imperialism. And then just it might be helpful to, you know, colonialism is a term that I'm quite happy to say is increasingly being used to understand the United States, settler colonialism in particular, people describing the United States as a settler, settler colonial society and country, which it absolutely is. In some ways, settler colonialism is a little redundant because colonialism is, is really a form of imperialism. And it's a specific form of imperialism where citizens or the people of the empire come to settle the territory that has been dominated or conquered. Uh, so there are other forms of imperialism where the people of the, the empire don't, by and large, go and settle the territory that's been conquered or dominated. And instead, uh, power and influence and control are exercised without a large number of, of people settling in that dominated territory. Would slavery in America and crimes against Native Americans be considered imperialism? Well, certainly the crimes against Native Americans. Um, uh, so, so best just start there. Uh, crimes meaning the, the, the conquest of Native American peoples across the, the continent that was, uh, I mean, it, that is ongoing to this day. The occupation of native lands continues to this day, and I'm certainly standing on native land uh, where I where I sit here in, in Georgia. And this is a, was a feature of, of U.S. history from independence. Uh, U.S. during the Revolutionary War, U.S. Uh, the U.S. military was fighting wars against Native American peoples as it was fighting against uh, the British, and then this continued really throughout the end of the. 18th century and throughout the 19th century. Um, so not just uh, the acts of war, but of course, the, the deaths of millions of, of Native Americans, the dispossession and displacement of many millions more uh, was a use of some of just some of the, the crimes that were committed. And, and these are the product of, of imperialism, of a, a, an empire that sought to expand across North, North America. Often in the, the minds of, of U.S. leaders and U.S. elites, for the sake of expanding territory uh, on which slavery could be practiced. So slavery was an important part of U.S. imperialism through the end of, of the Civil War, uh, or at least through emancipation, certainly. Uh, so they're deeply intertwined. 
So then there's like a historical through line of empires needing slave labor or even just serfs or just the lowest of the lowest working class. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you uh, said that because I, I talked about imperialism in 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 sort of I don't know um, bloodless terms or sort of some dictionary definition kind of terms. But you know, imperialism is not carried out for the sake of just expanding territory or ruling other other people. Um, imperialism through history, and there of course have been many empires before the United States. Uh, imperialism has been carried out to uh, acquire and expand uh, power uh, and often wealth, um, or almost always wealth. Power and wealth have been driving forces behind imperialism, and that that sort of wealth and profit acquisition comes about by with the help of imperialism through the seizure of territories, which allows uh, elites to control natural resources. Um, but also labor, like you were saying, and, and often slavery has been a part of, of imperial systems. Not always, but but often, the enslavement of people in conquered territories, as well as the theft of of their natural resources and the acquisition of control over markets, where people in the imperial homeland can then sell their goods and acquire wealth and profit in in that fashion as well. And you had already started mentioning this. So has America been involved in war ever since its inception? So in many ways, that's the starting point for my book, for the United States of War. I started the research and writing on the United States of War focused mostly on the period of war since 9-11, uh, the period of war that began with the U.S. invasion of, of Afghanistan in October 2001 just weeks after Al-Qaeda's attacks of 9-11. And it's important to point out, especially for folks who might not have been alive in 2001 or had limited uh, memory of, of what happened then, uh, the people of Afghanistan had nothing to do with the attacks of 9-11. The only connection to the attacks of 9-11 was that uh, the government of Afghanistan, controlling government at the time, the Taliban government, had given uh, Al-Qaeda, the organization that uh, Osama bin Laden founded and led had given them sanctuary. Uh, but the people who suffered the U.S. invasion and uh, deposing of the Taliban from, from power were, were, by and large, regular Afghan civilians who had absolutely nothing to do with these, these attacks. Um, so I, I, I began focused on, on that war and the wars that followed, the U.S. war in Iraq and Indeed, most people don't know it, but the U.S. military has been involved in combat in at least 24 countries in the now 19, more than 19 years of war that followed uh, the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. So I began focused on this la last 19 years, but then realized, you know, there's, there's nothing exceptional at all about these 19 years. If you look at the whole of U.S. history, um, one sees that, that the U.S. military has been involved in a war or some form of combat in all but 11 years of U.S. history. So about 95% of the years in U.S. history, the U.S. military has been involved in a war or some other form of combat. And actually, the Congressional Research Service puts together a list every year, and they update it, uh, a list of all the wars and other combat the U.S. military has been involved in since independence. So I, in the United States of War, seek to understand 
why? Why has the United States military been at war so consistently throughout U.S. history? So when you looked at that period and you realized it wasn't exceptional, you mean it wasn't unique. This was just par for the course of a longer history. Exactly. Exactly. How did this all start? Was there like a war doctrine? Was there like a point where the leaders of this country decided, hey, we should just be in permanent war? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good question. There, of course, you know, is no single starting point. Uh, but I, again, the reason Columbus shows up in the, in the title of the book is that, that I, I think you have to begin before the history of the United States begins formally, before U.S. independence, that, that uh, the United States grows out of, of course, it is a nation founded in war, founded in a war, revolutionary war against uh, Britain, the British Empire that, that, of course, had colonized large parts of North America, and uh, some of the colonial citizens uh, rose up and, and sought to gain independence from the empire. Um, but but the longer history of of U.S. Uh, excuse me of European imperialism in the Americas is is the context in which you have to understand uh, U.S. wars that 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 U.S. leaders uh, grew up in in an empire um, an empire that had had fought against and uh, native peoples themselves um, but also against other European empires the the Spanish and French empires in particular competed against the uh, Portuguese empire as well. Um, so there's, there's a long history. I, I think what, just one, one important thing to, to point out is that there's nothing, there's nothing natural about, about war. This is sort of a, a, a kind of myth that circulates often. So some, some people in answer to your question might say, oh, well, you know, humans are just by nature violent and, you know, war is just part of who humans are. Um, this is absolutely false. And anthropologists have shown this for decades, um, that there are people in societies uh, that have, do not know war, do not practice war. Violence of various kinds is, is uh, uh, universal in, in human existence, but, but wars are, are a different phenomenon and are, are much more recent phenomenon tied to the emergence of states um, in the past uh, thousand, several thousand years. Um, but when it comes to the U.S. history of war, uh, one sees that shortly after the end of the Revolutionary War, uh, one sees the United States uh, beginning to wage wars against uh, Native American peoples uh, and to expand beyond the initial borders of the United States. And this process continues uh, through the through 1898, um, when the U.S. begins acquiring territories, uh, conquering territories outside of North America during the war with the declining Spanish empire. And then uh, in the 20th century and into the 21st century, uh, you don't see the same formal acquisition of of territory through war uh, that one saw throughout the first roughly 120 years of U.S. history. Um, But instead, uh, the U.S. empire grows in power in a variety of other ways, um, rather than claiming and conquering new colonies, um, a variety of other tools, including the increasing uh, establishment of foreign military bases. Foreign military bases become something like uh, the colony. They become a tool, uh, a much more discrete tool, a smaller uh, 
control over a smaller piece of territory becomes central to exercising U.S. power and influence around the globe, especially after World War II. It sounds like then the goal of the U.S., maybe not from day one, but it became something where it wasn't just about forming an emancipated country, but also having their own empire. Now that we're free, we can be like everybody else and have our own little slice of the world or maybe a bigger slice and see how far we can get. A, a bigger slice, and indeed. And one of the things I, I, I try to be careful about in, in the book is, is to be specific about who was driving this train, as it were, um, that it was never about the we as, uh, as all uh, U.S. Americans, um, that it was a, a small group of mostly white, wealthy male elites who were envisioning the United States as an empire like the European empires, uh, as a country that would expand beyond its borders, that would seek to uh, reach the Pacific um, and, and conquer anything and anyone in its way in the process. Uh, but so I think, I think that is important to, to, to point to the actors who played important roles in launching uh, the long history of U.S. wars, why they did it, what, what they sought, sought to gain, what they, how they benefited, um, and who didn't benefit, who suffered the costs of the, these wars. Um, because, of course, just like war is never natural or inevitable, n- none of the wars the, the U.S. military has fought in its history and the U.S. government has fought in its history were inevitable. Um, and indeed, part of what, what uh, my, my book, The United States of War, shows is that there were wars that were averted um, and that there was resistance, whether a war was averted or not throughout U.S. history, there was resistance to uh, going to war, uh, So, which I think is important to, to remember um, because the book is not just a history for the sake of history. It's a history uh, for the sake of hopefully uh, educating people about the, the the history of the United States, its history of war, and with the goal of, of ending this pattern of war, of, of stopping this pattern of constant warfare. Um, and, you know, it, in some ways it, it seems cliched, um, uh, but I hope not. And I think it needs to be said that the, the goal ultimately of the book is, is to help be part of a movement to turn the United States into a United States of peace rather than a, a United States that has been so profoundly defined by war and, and a long history of war. So going back to jingoism and nationalism, then you're reframing the way that these elite few powerful men are normally portrayed as liberators. It's more like they had greater ambition than just liberating themselves from Great Britain. They wanted more than that. Yes, I think you you put it well. They, they were, of course, you know, almost entirely wealthy elites, um, and they sought to increase. I mean, you know, the the tax taxation by Britain, of course, the the financial interests involved were one of the central motivations of the revolutionaries. Um, so control over, over their finances and their ability to expand their finances, um, and control over the land was, was, a, a central, these were central issues at stake, not just, uh, you know, lovely ideals of liberty and democracy. Yeah. So they were almost, uh, cramping their style. They wanted to take over more stuff, but they were holding them back. Yeah. And, you know, of course, different revolutionary leaders had 
different motivations and and were you know imperialists to different degrees and had you know there were great debates over over the future of the country and the direction and um you know john quincy adams is one one leader who comes to prominence not so much during the revolutionary war war but later in the early 19th century becomes president uh and was secretary of state and he's one who warned against uh basically the united states becoming an imperial power because he warns against uh, the united states getting embroiled in in foreign wars uh and uh and he like like some others you know argued against for example the the war with mexico a war the united states like almost every other war in US history was one that 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 US forces the US government instigated uh so there it is important to to point to the the sources of resistance those who have resisted through US history and again in no small part to try to encourage more people to join a movement today uh, to change the direction of the country were there some watershed moments in US war policy I know in your book, one of the things you mentioned is the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah, that that certainly is one. Although the Monroe Doctrine, you know, is basically a bit of bluster in a certain sense. It was basically telling it was the U.S. government and President Monroe telling uh, the European empires to stay out of the Americas um, and to say that we are the dominant power in the Americas. And for the most part, the European empires ignored that warning and just did what they were doing um but it was uh, reflects the the aspirations the imperial aspirations the aspirations to control more territory throughout the the hemisphere uh that u.s leaders had uh u.s elites had um if not to to literally uh, control every inch of the hemisphere to exert power over other other countries in the in the americas north and south america um but so i the, the period the points in time that i i think are most important are of course that the period i mentioned from columbus's arrival in 1492 to u.s independence um and then we see i described the the period of, of u.s expansion that begins pretty much from the first days of, of independence uh, through 1898, when uh, the U.S. Has, has conquered territory across North America to the Pacific, and then begins uh, conquering territories outside of, of mainland North America. So Puerto Rico, uh, Cuba becomes a de facto colony. The Philippines becomes a colony. Guam is acquired as a, a colony. Um, American Samoa had already uh, was was acquired around the same time. Uh, Alaska had are also been acquired in the uh, mid to late 19th century, um, and you know so, sometimes in in history books, if if imperialism comes up at all, uh, it's it's this 1898 is identified as the the age of U.S. imperialism, and and then we move on, and uh, the U.S. is a, a, a democracy otherwise. Um, and uh, the way I describe 1898 is it's just a continuation of this this pattern since independence, and it does mark a, a turning point because after 1898, by and large, the U.S. stops acquiring new te- new colonies, um, and instead uh, it engages in a period of several decades of invading mostly Latin American countries, 
um, with its military, often occupying them with military bases and, and troops for, for quite long periods of time, but not conquering them as colonies, just exercising kind of de facto colonial rule. Um, so the countries maintain their, their sovereignty formally, but, but, but the, the U.S. government uh, maintains an, an outsized degree of control and influence over the, the policies of that country, including with the presence of U.S. military troops on their soil. And in many ways, this has continued into the present, especially in, in Central America, especially in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Um, but uh, the other couple points I would I, in time in U.S. history that I would I would mention are, of course, the the beginning of World War II and and the United States' entrance into into the war, uh, a, a process that was preceded by the acquisition of uh, bases in British colonies in the Western Hemisphere, the destroyers for bases deal, and I. I, I underline the importance of this deal because it really marks the beginning of a massive expansion in the number of U.S. military bases outside of of U.S. territory, formally controlled U.S. territory. And during World War II, the U.S. uh, builds thousands, literally thousands of military bases around the globe. uh, And many of them close at the end of the war, but a huge number are, are maintained. Um, and that number of bases actually expands in, in the, in the post World War II period, uh, during the Cold War, um, especially during the, the war in, in Korea and the, the U.S. war in, in Southeast Asia and Vietnam and Laos, Cambodia. Um, so, so th- this is an important period. And then I point to the end of the Cold War where again, a substantial number of U.S. bases abroad close. Um, as a, a reflection of the end of, of the Cold War, but but a very substantial number of bases remains, and this, this shows us how uh, the, the the structure and footprint of, of the U.S. Empire basically is is maintained um, despite the the disappearance of the Soviet Union, the other emp- global empire um, that the U.S. was competing against in, in the Cold War. Um, and then I, d- I would just point real quickly to 2001 as another important turning point and the beginning of what I describe as a, a period of hyper-imperialism, a period um, where, where the U.S. has been at war in um, perpetuity or a, has been at war continuously since October 7th, 2001, when the U.S. military invades Afghanistan. Um, and a, a period marked by the growth of the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us about, um, military budgets just expanding um, beyond even the height of the Cold War, despite the absence of any enemy that uh, would require those levels of spending. Um, so those are some of the periods I would, uh, and turning points I would point to. A note to our loyal listeners, if you love the show, Please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity 
by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Something that we often hear about in history class and even just in the social fabric is about manifest destiny, especially when talking about our past. And when I say our past, I mean America's past. So how much was manifest destiny a real belief during the time of American expansion throughout the continent? And how much of it is just rationalization for past actions? Like the way I've always heard it is it's not our fault. The universe compelled us. It was just manifest destiny. That's a great, great question. I, I mean, I think it's it's both. It became absolutely a kind of rationalization and justification for past imperialism, meaning past conquest of, of Native American peoples and their territories and the dispossession, displacement, and death, murder that went along with it. Uh, and it becomes a kind of rallying cry, a kind of um, ideological tool that fuels interest in further expansion. Uh, so I, I think it, it, it is uh, on, on its own. But, but I, I think ultimately the, the driving forces, um, that are the, the more significant driving forces behind U.S. wars and behind U.S. imperialism, before the, behind the further expansion of the United States, the driving forces are, are fundamentally economic. Um, the, the, again, the desire to conquer territory, uh, to acquire natural resources, markets, uh, uh, space for the, for the expansion of the, the system of, of enslavement, um, and the agricultural system that, that, uh, was so dependent on, on slavery, um, among other economic goals. Uh, it, there were political interests as well. You know, politicians realized that 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 war uh, war sells. That war is a good political strategy. Um, and of course, you know, we can't overlook the the significance of of racism. Um, the way that that racism was was mobilized uh, as a tool, um, also to rationalize and justify uh, the the conquest of. of American Indians, of Native American peoples, indigenous peoples, um, as well as, of course, the justification of, of uh, African slavery, enslaved, um, uh, enslavement of African peoples. Uh, but it becomes a, a way to, to rally a nation that was defined as a white European nation and its expansion uh, and domination over uh, people of color, over non-white peoples. You spoke to us already about imperialism and settler colonialism in the U.S. on Native Americans. How was Abraham Lincoln in this regard? So Lincoln, of course, gets celebrated widely and basically by everyone in mainstream U.S. politics these days, including you know Trump and Trumpites, um, as well as you know, people on the left. Uh, Lincoln, of course, was a complicated individual and product of, of his time. But what's, uh, I, you know, this is one of the many periods in U.S. history that I needed to re-educate myself about. During, during the, the Civil War, you know, you might think that, that U.S. forces were, uh, federal forces, the forces under Lincoln's control were focused on fighting the South, and, and they were. Um, but, but the wars against Native American peoples continued during the Civil War, um, mostly waged by volunteers. The U.S. military was deployed 
the formal U.S. military was deployed uh, to fight against the South. But um, Lincoln recruited volunteers to serve in the, the Army of, of the West, as it was referred to. Um, and they didn't just sit on their hands. Um, they continued to, to uh, instigate and engage in warfare with, with indigenous peoples throughout the, the West. Um, and uh, this is another little known story, but, but during, the, during the war, uh, the largest mass execution in U.S. history took place. And it was a, it was a hanging of not Confederate leaders, but instead of 38 Dakota Sioux. Um, who had engaged in an, an uprising uh, against U.S. domination. Uh, and uh, a larger number of, of Dakota Sioux were initially s- slated for, for execution, but um, Lincoln ultimately decided to just execute 38 of them, while you know many of the leaders of the Confederacy uh, uh, not only were not executed, but, but uh, ultimately escaped much, if any, punishment at all. So speaking of which, then, Americans often look to Europe for examples of horrifying genocidal world leaders. But do you think we don't need to look far from home because we had Andrew Jackson? I know a lot of people always compare Trump to Hitler because that's like the worst person they could think of in history. But Andrew Jackson, I I would say, is also pretty bad. Can you tell us a bit about him? Yeah, Andrew Jackson was pretty bad, to say the least, and and I think Trump has cited Jackson as his favorite president, uh, which which is telling. Uh, Jackson was uh, himself an enslaver, um, someone who quote unquote owned uh, enslaved people um, in a very large. Uh, it's called a plantation, but you know I think others rightly call plantations what they what they were slave labor camps where people were forced to work against their will. Um, Jackson, you know, is, is again, in, in most mainstream U.S. history texts um, that people read in schools, is the people, the texts talk about the age of Jacksonian d- democracy and the expansion of, of democracy in that period, which meant just to, to more white men, uh, and that's it. Um, but Jackson made his name as, as, a, as a military leader who really engaged in a large process of ethnic cleansing uh, throughout the South, a, a process that also uh, was focused on uh, basically a, a serving as a slave patrol, um, looking for escaped enslaved people, or formerly enslaved people, um, in the way that many early police forces did. But it was, it was Jackson's entire army that was engaged in this and engaged in a process of uh, sweeping through large parts of, of the South uh, and dispossessing Native peoples in the process. Uh, Jackson, of course, as president, was also responsible for, for the Trail of Tears, uh, despite uh, the Supreme Court ruling twice uh, against this policy. Uh, 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 the Trail of Tears, of course, displaced thousands of, of Cherokee and other Native Americans um, from the, the east uh, to Oklahoma, um, and, uh, during which... Um, it's something like a, I think a quarter of the the, the people forced westward uh, died, um, and this, of course, was just one one example of of many genocidal acts. And that uh, I'm glad you used that word because there there is no other word we um, or it's it's a word we have to 
grapple with, and not just a word we have to grapple with, we have to grapple with the genocidal nature of the expansion of the United States, uh, the genocidal nature of, the, of U.S. history, of U.S. wars, that these were wars designed to, uh, to not just to dispossess and displace Native American peoples, but, but in most cases to wipe them off the map. Uh, to open up space for Euro-American uh, domination, profit-making, um, and 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 life uh, and control over over uh, over large swaths of North America. What about U.S. involvement in Latin America? Can you give us some of the most notable things we should be aware of? U.S. involvement in Latin America like U.S. involvement around the world, really begins in the earliest days or some of the earliest days of U.S. history. It's not... Uh, U.S. military actually had a presence outside of North America from uh, early in the 19th century. Um, it's not just something that, that happened in the, in the 20th century or after 1898. Um, so there is U.S. government and U.S. elite, meaning business, um, interest in in Latin America as a, a, a location of, of markets um, and natural resources in particular. Uh, the greatest period of U.S. intervention, which is, again, not, not the best word because it, uh, of course, makes it sound very uh, benign. Um, the U.S. began invading, uh, militarily invading uh, Latin American countries in the late 19th century. Uh, and especially in the, the first two and a half decades of the uh, 20th century, um, there was a, a continuous uh, series of uh, U.S. military invasions of, of countries in Central America and other parts of Latin America doing the bidding of business interests that uh, either uh, had debts that they felt had gone unpaid or for a variety of reasons, the U.S. military basically was the, the sort of bodyguard, as it had been around the world, um, for business interests, um, banking interests, the interests of, of banana companies, for example. Um, and, and this is a, a very consistent pattern uh, that one sees that there's a slight pause um, when uh, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, becomes president and establishes new kinds of relationships with, with Latin America. Um, but in, in many ways, after World War II, uh, the intervention, the pattern of intervention continued, but just in different forms, usually more covert forms than, than outright U.S. interventions. So this is the period um, in the 1950s where, where we see coups in places like Guatemala um, and a whole variety of more covert forms of U.S. intervention uh, throughout Latin America that, that continue to the present, including with, you know, coups in, in Honduras in 2009, um, U.S. In, uh, involvement in a uh, uh, basically rigged election in Honduras more recently, uh, involvement in the, the coup and backing for the, the coup in Bolivia that ousted Evo Morales from power uh, recently, uh, among many other examples. Chile would be another important example of the U.S. backing for uh, Pinochet's coup in, in Chile that, that overthrew the democratically elected government of Chile and brought into power the Pinochet uh, dictatorship that ruled the country for, for years after. What about U.S. involvement throughout Asia? 
I think Vietnam is a conflict most Americans are aware of, but I think we're less aware of Korea, the Philippines, and Cambodia. So what happened there and what were the human costs? So the U.S., of course, was uh, profoundly involved in, in Asia uh, during World War II, fought uh, the war in the Pacific, and maintains a, a massive presence, military presence, in the Pacific after occupying Japan, of course, um, continuing to maintain forces in, in Korea. Uh, and uh, the history of the Korean War is a, a complicated one, um, but uh, what often is, is overlooked is, is the, the horrific costs that were borne by the, the people of, of Korea, of the Korean Peninsula, somewhere around 3 million uh, Koreans died in this this brutal brutal war, three million, and that's probably just a, a minimal estimate of the number dead in in the Korean War, somewhere between three and four million. And the total population of Korea at the start of the war was probably somewhere around twenty nine million. So we're talking more than a tenth of the population dead. Um, that would be you know today what uh, upwards of thirty million U.S. Americans dead um, if the U.S. were to f- be it in, involved in, in, in such a war. Uh, the U.S. war in, in Southeast Asia you know, often gets referred to as just the, the war in Vietnam, um, but this was a war that crossed over the borders into Laos and Cambodia um, throughout almost all of the, the U.S. war in Vietnam. Um, this war also took somewhere around three to four million lives on, on, on all sides. Uh, the focus of in the United States, of course, is often on the roughly 58,000 U.S. military personnel who died, whose names you see on the wall in, in Washington, D.C., um, a haunting um, and important monument to those deaths. But, but the wall really should be much, much, much bigger to include the dead on, on all sides. Um, and, and one begins, uh, which I, I would like to see because it would you know, hopefully force more people in the United States to grapple with not just the, the dead U.S. Americans, but the, the, the full human cost of, of the long U.S. intervention in, in Southeast Asia, which really dates to the re- removal of, of French forces from, from Vietnam in 1955. And, and even before that, really since World War II, the United States was deeply involved uh, in uh, Southeast Asia. Was our involvement in Cambodia and Laos mostly about trying to stop communism or fighting this communist threat? Well, that, of course, was always the, the justification. Uh, well, at the, at the time, uh, U.S. leaders denied that the, the United States was, was fighting in, in Laos and Cambodia and lied, one of the many lies of, of that long war. Uh, the justification was always uh, having a presence there, at the very least, uh, to stop and block the, the spread of communism, the domino theory being invoked. Um, but the, the, you know, the interests of, of U.S. leaders were, were far more complicated, and, and in many ways it was about uh, asserting U.S. global dominance. Uh, and this is not just, again, dominance for dominance sake, but dominance for the, the sake of power of, of and, and 
profit-making interests of, of U.S. corporations, U.S. elites, uh, and and the dominance of a, a, a system of U.S.-driven, U.S.-dominated capitalism uh, to to ensure that the dominance of that system on a worldwide basis. And what about the U.S. in the Philippines? So the the history of the U.S. in the Philippines is is a, a, a long and complicated one too. U.S. forces arrive in, in the Philippines in 1898 during the, the war with Spain, and uh, Filipino insurgents, Filipino revolutionaries had been trying to gain their independence from the Spanish Empire, uh, which had colonized the Philippines, um, and, and initially hoped that, that the U.S. military would be allies. And instead, uh, the U.S. military became just the, the next colonial ruler. Uh, and the uh, U.S. military then uh, engaged in a, a long war against uh, Filipino uh, revolutionaries seeking their independence that lasted until 1913. So the U.S. colonizes the Philippines, and it remains a colony until after World War II, until 1946. But, but even after formal independence, part of the independence negotiations, uh, forced Filipino leaders to give up large parts of their sovereignty um, so that uh, in many ways uh, the United States remained uh, the kind of de facto ruler, certainly had a very outsized uh, influence over the Philippines um, really to the present. Um, with, uh, the government of the Philippines n- notably uh, establishing some greater sovereignty when they kicked the U.S. military out in 1991, 1992, kicked the U.S. military, which had maintained very large military bases in the Philippines since formal independence. Um, since then, uh, the, the U.S. military has found ways to return to the Philippines, um, establishing smaller military bases, a growing number of military agreements with the government of the Philippines, and has been, since 2002, been involved in a long-running civil war in the Philippines where the Filipino government, Philippines government, has been at war with with mostly Muslim insurgents in in the south. Um, And the U.S. military has backed this, uh, the Philippines government in in this war uh, since 2002. I know if another country had bases throughout the U.S., we'd call it fascism or an invasion. If nothing else, we'd call it being colonized. So is having bases and military influence on a country a form of colonialism? So the argument I make in my book, The United States of War, is that U.S. military bases, especially after World War II, become a defining feature of the U.S. empire. Uh, Rather than the United States uh, acquiring new colonies, large swaths of territory, uh, the U.S. military maintains military bases in other lands on a global basis and an increasingly uh, wide swath of the globe and uses these relatively small pieces of territory to exert other forms of political and economic and military influence. So I, I see mili- foreign military bases, extraterritorial military bases, as a, a, a tool of, of imperialism. And not one unique to the the U.S. empire. Uh, Empires past have have used foreign military bases as tools of of power and influence and control and domination. Um, But it becomes uh, particularly 
uh, pronounced in, in, in U.S. history and such that some people refer to the United States as an, an empire of bases. Um, now, of course, the United States, most of what we refer to as the United States today, all of it is, is colonized land. Um, all of the, the 50 states is land that was colonized by uh, either initially Britain or by the United States after its independence. And uh, of course, the United States also continues to uh, maintain uh, colonies, um, formal colonies that get called territories, but Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands. These are, again, the government calls them uh, territories today, but they were called colonies when they were acquired and are still in a colonial relationship with the United States. So I, that, I, I see that as sort of the colonial breadth of, of the United States and, and U.S. military bases abroad as part of the larger U.S. empire. There was a study you were involved in that looked at how many people were displaced by U.S.-led wars, 37 million in total and still counting. So casualties, we understand. What does it mean to be displaced? Well, displacement is a, uh, a profound ex- experience for anyone who has experienced it. And, and I think probably most people listening have uh, some experience with displacement either personally in their life or, or in their family's life. That is that, that so many of us have, have lived lives or are part of families that have lived lives that have been touched by war, that have displaced people, forced people from their homes um, because people fear for their lives um, in one way or another. Uh, often people flee their homes, not in a state of, of formal war, but as in places like Central America today, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, where there's you know gang warfare and murder rates higher than even in formal war zones, as well as you know, what we could refer to as economic kinds of, of warfare going on. People are, are fleeing for their lives um, and, and their inability to make livelihoods. So I, I say that just because I, I think it is important to try to grapple with and for each of us to, to try to put ourselves in the shoes of of those who have been displaced, because it's it's a phenomenon that in many ways defines the, the globe today. An unprecedented number of, of people worldwide are, are displaced, either um, within their countries or, or across international borders. Um, somewhere around 79, 80 million people today are, are living in displacement. They've been forced from their homes um, by war or by some sort of natural disaster. Um, we generally refer to the, the people displaced within a country as internally displaced people, and people only become refugees when they get displaced across an international border. Now, you mentioned the casualties of the, the post-9-11 wars, the wars the United States has been waging continuously since uh, October 7, 2001, in the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. I, I was part of a team, uh, a great team of students at American University who carried out a study that sought to, to document and calculate how many people have been displaced in just the eight of the, the most violent wars the United States has been involved in since 2001. So the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, but also the war in, in Pakistan that was part of the, the war in, in Afghanistan. It's always crossed over the borders. The wars in Yemen, Libya, Syria, the Philippines, and Somalia. 
So we looked at these eight most violent wars and documented, calculated that uh, a minimum of 37 million people have been displaced in, in these wars since 2001. This is a very conservative estimate. In fact, the, the total could rise to somewhere between 50 and 60 million people displaced in these wars, which is really hard to fathom. But if we just focused on the, the 37 million people displaced in, in these eight wars the U.S. military has been involved in since 2001, 37 million people is about the size of all of Canada, about the size of the population of California. It's also the size of the populations of Texas and Virginia combined. Um, just a in many ways, I think unfathomable number of, of people. And, and actually, the number is so large, you can get lost in it. And that's why I, I was sort of encouraging folks to, to try to, in a sense, put yourselves in the shoes of someone who had a, a single individual who's been displaced, because a number like 37 million can, can be hard to, to fathom. So I think, and we have to, to think about what it has meant for the human beings impacted by by these wars the the US government has waged since 2001 again uh, as as has been the case throughout US history the focus during these wars has been on on the US military pr- personnel who've lost their lives or who have been injured often grievously by by these wars and these uh, the the people who've lost their lives the family members who've lost loved ones the people who've come back so grievously injured um, the, the costs of these wars have been horrific, um, but the, the costs, the, the, sh- the magnitude of the damage has been astronomically higher in the countries where the wars have been, been fought. Somewhere between three and four million people uh, have likely died in, in just five of the countries in, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, uh, Syria, and, and Yemen. Um, Somewhere between three and four million people have likely died since since two thousand one. In addition to the uh, thirty seven million displaced and likely tens of millions of of injuries, um, civilians and and combatants, but the vast majority civilians. And I, I think that most people in the United States have not even begun to reckon with the damage that that these wars, these post nine eleven wars, the war on terror the damage that has been inflicted um, with our tax dollars. Um, and, and in many ways, the, the damage, it extends beyond the damage to, to human beings in the war zones or the damage, the horrible damage to, to U.S. military personnel, to U.S. veterans come back so harmed in so many cases. Uh, the damage is even broader when you begin to think about how much money has the U.S. government, how much money is, have U.S. taxpayers spent on these wars. And, and as of October of last year, it was, the total was $6.4 trillion, $6.4 trillion, which is, again, a, a figure that is very difficult to wrap one's brain around, but it, it's a figure that should make, really should make us weep um, to think of what we could have done with $6.4 trillion when it comes to oh, I don't know, protecting ourselves from pandemics. Um, you know, the, the deaths that we've seen in the COVID-19 pandemic did not need to happen. 
certainly not the, anything close to the scale. And other countries show us that it didn't have to be the way it is in the United States today. And the fault is not just that of the Trump administration, although they bear a lot of fault. But the United States as a country was unprepared because we have been dumping money into a war machine, especially since 2001, but in many ways since World War II and into a military industrial complex that that has become uh, a kind of self-perpetuating beast all its own uh, that has uh, inflicted horrible costs because of the the money that has been drained from the U.S. Treasury and invested in in the manufacture of weapons and another war making, and has thus been uh, taken from things like public health, from a universal healthcare system, from uh, repairing our crumbling public schools, from repairing our crumbling infrastructure, from providing affordable housing for people sleeping on the streets and the millions in this country, from the millions who go hungry every day and every night. Uh, these are some of the, the costs of war that we have to think about when it comes to the, the last more than 19 years of, of war, the war on terror, um, in addition to the, the lives that have been lost directly. These eight conflicts you mentioned, is the justification then that these are wars on terror and that's why we're involved? That has essentially been the, the justification uh, that, uh, and, and, and much like during the Cold War when the term communist was used by U.S. leaders and leaders in other parts of the world to label anyone that they didn't like, um, terrorist has been, and terrorism, the threat of terrorism has been invoked to justify almost any sort of U.S. military involvement around the world, often without much U.S. congressional oversight and, and little, uh, if any, uh, knowledge on, on the part of the U.S. public. Again, you know, at least 24 countries, the U.S. military has been uh, engaging in con combat in uh, since 2001. Um, again, some, some focus on, on U.S. involvement in, in, of course, Afghanistan and Iraq, um, prominently, and, and perhaps a bit in Yemen, uh, but 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 most of these wars have been fought in the shadows, uh, with some allusions to, to terrorism. Um, but the in addition to the the deaths and injury and displacement that these these wars have have meant, um, they have also been complete failures on their own terms. They have, generally speaking. Uh, created more people who would take up arms uh, against the United States and against others. They've effectively created more terrorism. There are far more terrorist groups today than there were in 2001 when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. Um, these wars have been disastrous, um, and it, to a degree where you know disaster doesn't even begin to to capture the, the c catastrophe that they've meant for the United States, for the the countries where the wars have been waged. Um, for the globe. It's interesting how over time we just come up with different slogans to justify these continuous wars. It sounds like it started with Manifest Destiny and then there was the Cold War. In my lifetime, there was the War on Drugs, which became War on Terror. And it's just like the wars never stopped, just came up with like new marketing material. That is very, very well put, uh, indeed. Um, and you know, President Trump actually critiqued uh, the weapons manufacturers in the, the weeks before the November election and said, you know, these weapons manufacturers, they, they, they want the endless wars to continue. 
Um, and he was, you know, claiming he was going to bring an end to the endless wars and saying the weapons manufacturers, they want to, and it, it, indeed he was absolutely right. Um, uh, as he is, you know, every once in a blue moon, the weapons manufacturers, the, the various components of the military industrial complex have benefited greatly from this U.S. pattern of war since 2001 and, and, and for decades. Uh, uh, but, you know, President Trump is, uh, is always a, tremendous hypocrite because he has funded the the weapons manufacturers to uh, levels again uh, not even seen at the height of the the cold war um, he has perpetuated the endless wars by uh, continuing to plow hundreds of billions of dollars into the US military on an annual basis but there there's actually some something encouraging to take away from from this uh, the statement by by Trump, which is that you know why was he saying this? Why was he critiquing the endless wars and saying he was going to bring an end to the endless wars? He did very little to do that in his first first and his only, I hope, four years in office. Uh, he was saying it because he realized it's good politics. He realized that there is a majority there are a majority of people in the country, including a large part of his base, that are sick and tired of war. That don't want to see. Uh, endless war be the state of affairs in, in, for the United States that want an end uh, to the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, in countries around the globe, um, and and this should give us encouragement that that the the anti-war movement that sought to to stop the U.S. war in Afghanistan that sought to stop uh, the U.S. war in in Iraq is often portrayed as a, a failure, but it really wasn't. I mean, Public opinion turned against those wars, I think, faster than than perhaps in, in any wars in U.S. history, and that was because of the opposition that built before the wars even started. Uh, so I, I think we have to see the the way in which uh, a majority of the country, a significant majority, likely, you know, does not want to see uh, the U.S. involved in in wars in the ways that it, it is. Um, wants to see an end to the endless wars. Wants to see. Uh, war used as the last possible policy uh, option, rather than uh, as it has been throughout most of U.S. history, one of the first. And this is an aside, but something you said earlier about imagining 37 million people and how that's basically Canada. When I think of Manifest Destiny or U.S. expansion, I think of just moving west and maybe a little bit south into Mexico. But the U.S. also try to go into and possess land in Canada as well and try to spread their empire into Canada. That was something I, I don't think I knew that much about until I read your book. Yeah, the, the U.S., the broader pattern is that the U.S. invaded its neighbors in every direction. Yeah, I think I guess that was the surprise. It wasn't just one direction. It was every direction they can go. Yeah. And of, of course, you know, while, while we think of Canada as a mostly white Euro, Euro nation, um, you know, whose, whose land was that originally as well? That was, you know, the goal there was the, the conquest of, of indigenous lands that were themselves occupied by uh, Euro Canadians. Um, the invasions of, of Canada were, were all a disaster during uh, the Revolutionary War and during the War of, of 1812. Um, so, uh, but the, the larger pattern is, uh, that one sees is, is that the, almost without exception, Canada being, you know, one complicated exception, 
um, the, the lands invaded during U.S. wars and during other forms of combat and other invasions uh, have been lands occupied by people of color around the world, almost without exception. And and that once again underlying the the racism that has shaped the long history of of U.S. wars in in profound ways. Everything in the United States of war is eye opening. A constant I always hear from not just our listeners, but just young people on the internet who find something on Wikipedia is about why they never learned this, not only in school, but even through our media. So how do we change how history is taught? Is it just about people like you writing more books or would there have to be institutional change or some kind of policy change? Such a great and important question because ultimately I am, yeah, interested in reaching far larger audiences than just those who will read my book. And, and I think I'm, you know, part of a, a, a group of, of scholars and writers and journalists who with, with similar aims. And I, I think ultimately our, our aim or among our aims has to be uh, the goal of, of changing how U.S. history in particular is, is taught in, in schools around the country um, to give uh, to provide a, a, a more honest portrayal of, of U.S. history that grapples with the, gen- for example, the, the genocidal uh, dimensions of, of U.S. history, the genocidal conquest of indigenous peoples' lands across uh, North America, uh, that grapples with the, the history of, of U.S. wars, not in a celebratory way, but in a way that looks squarely at the, the effects of these wars, who, who suffered and who benefited. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's something I'm thinking a lot about how to ensure that, that my book has impact. Um, I've, I've thought that, you know, if I was ever to write another book, I, I, I should focus it on, on younger people, on, you know, junior high students or high school students. Um, so I, I don't have, you know, a single answer other than that, uh, we need to dramatically improve the quality of, of public education in every sense, that public education in, in our public school systems um, and other school systems, um, but also other forms of, of public education um, that would more honestly uh, teach the, the history of, of U.S. Uh, of the United States and, and would honestly uh, analyze the present um, and the, the current state of U.S. involvement throughout the world in a military sense, um, but also in, you know, an economic sense and political sense, uh, this is uh, dramatically uh, needed. And, and I, I would only encourage listeners to, um, to be part of that movement to better educate uh, people in the United States and, and, and around the world. Because high school teachers, they don't have that much autonomy, right? A lot of it has to be done from a greater structural point if we wanted to make these changes, if we wanted to have different textbooks? This is a, a, a major problem. Um, and you're, I mean, you're giving me I, I ideas for you know, people involved in the anti-war movement. Uh, you know, there are many ways in which this struggle is being uh, waged. Um, but I, I, I think um, changing the way war is taught is a major a major uh, should be a major focus, um, but there are major structural impediments because, indeed, uh, you know how how textbooks are produced, 
um, the role of state governments in, in determining what can be taught in public schools. Uh, there are many barriers to improving um, the quality um, and content of, of uh, our public educational system and, and, and curricula, including curricula about uh, U.S. history and U.S. wars. Um, but I, I think it's, it's something that needs to be undertaken. And the upcoming 20th anniversary of the global war on terror and the, the attacks uh, of September 11, 2001, actually provide an opportunity that I know I, I'm part of a group um, that's called the Cost of War Project. And we are seeking to uh, tell that history, the history of, of, of 9-11 and, and the history of the wars that have followed in a, a, a more honest way. And, and, and it, I think, provides an opportunity uh, to revisit and um, advocate for a, a more honest telling of, of U.S. history and of U.S. wars uh, throughout the entirety of, of U.S. history, not just uh, the, the history since 2001. So there's something I said at the beginning, which was about objective reality. From just speaking with you, what I've gathered is that maybe there is no objective reality, but there is a way of teaching history that is more honest and in good faith. That seems like that is a goal that we can aspire to. Yeah, I think that was really beautifully put. There, Yeah, there is no objective history. There's no objective telling of history. But so much of our history texts and, and the, again, the, the kind of sort of what we uh, consume in, in, in our media world um, is, is shaped by a kind of celebratory, nationalist, often jingoist uh, um, version of and vision of what the United States is rather than uh, the complicated uh, history of 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 what the United States has been as a as a country, um, and I think we have to look squarely at at the the difficult history and the the parts of 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 history, U.S. history that have been uh, whitewashed by historians by journalists for far too long. Thank you for your time, David. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to speak with you, and and uh, I love your your podcast and the whole uh, liberatory martial arts uh, perspective. I appreciate that. So, before you leave, where can people find you and your book? So, my website is davidvine.net, davidvine.net, which has information about about all three of my books, including uh, the United States of War. It also has resources to learn more about war, about U.S. military bases abroad, about the Chagossians and, and the displacement that they suffered, um, resources to get involved in the struggle to make the United States a, a United States of peace. Uh, I should uh, mention that, that purchasing any of my books is a kind of contribution. I, I donate the, the royalties uh, from all three books to victims of, of U.S. wars um, and, and other forms of violence. Um, so, so it's a kind of contribution in that way. Um, uh, there's also information at, on my, uh, at my website, basenation.us, basenation.us, uh, for those particularly interested in U.S. military bases abroad and their impacts globally. Now that's the show. 
If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pauls. Hitting with the left. South Pauls. Sam. Paul. South Paul. South Paul.